In this episode of Startups of the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about SaaS pricing, sponsoring events as a SaaS marketing strategy, subscription box approaches, and we even revisit GDPR once again. And we answer more listener questions. This is Startups of the Rest of Us, episode 390. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product, or you're just thinking about it, or even your second or third. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What is the word this week, sir? Well, I, uh, I've spent a lot of time this past week cleaning up my email list and setting up some marketing automations and working on my website. So just more or less uh, the, with the email list, there was a time frame of about six or six to seven months where I didn't have any sort of CAPTCHA in place. And the form for adding your email address onto the list was embedded directly into the website. So because of that, because it wasn't being loaded through JavaScript, there were a lot of bots that came through and just randomly entered in email addresses. And I did not have double opt-ins enabled for this short time period. And I could very clearly see it in Drift. Like the, the, there was stuff that just should not have been in there. <laughs> so, yep, totally. That's a good way to do it. Yeah, we, like you said, if it had been the Drip JavaScript widget, there's, I think it's just one checkbox in Drip where you can add CAPTCHA to it. You add recaptcha, but obviously if it's embedded form, that that's not so easy. So cool. Nice work there. I was going to, I meant to ask you at the top of the episode, through the magic of time travel, it is microconf is happening right now as this episode goes live. It's Tuesday morning. What what do you think you're doing? Are you are you hungover, regretting that you stayed up so late? No, I doubt it. <laughs> I've, I've learned that I learned that back in what 2011, 2012, yeah. not to do yeah. that. So you're pacing yourself these days, especially because it's four days for us now, right? Which is definitely a big bigger deal with because we have obviously growth for two days in starter. Definitely, and I had out on Friday, so I'm there from Friday to Friday. So it's not Ooh. just four days; it's seven days. For That's going to be a long dude. That is a long time to be in Vegas. I know. <laughs> Drink a lot of water. <laughs> go to bed early, use chapstick, like all the things we said last week on the episode, you're going to, you're going to really want to double down on those. Yeah. Last week's episode was sort of a reminder for I me, bet. like, Hey, these are all the things to, to make sure you remember to do is just so you can pace yourself. Yeah. So I'm in Vegas one day less than you are. And I will be thinking my lucky stars after about three or four days in Vegas, man, I'm done. Yeah. I considered staying until Saturday, but I decided against it. <laughs> yeah. That'd be a tough call. My grandma used to live in Vegas. And so we would visit her a couple times a year. So I've been to Vegas 30, 40 times. I mean, I lived in California, right? So it was a super quick hop from Oakland airport. And yeah, it would always be two to three day trip. And it was a, it was a perfect amount of time. It was like, oh yeah, that's what this place is like. And then by the time you're three days in, you're like, oh yeah, that's what this place is like. Like, so tired of it. So for me, I just came back from a two night, almost three day retreat. It's the longest retreat I've taken in quite some time. I was trying to think, cause I took like a one day last year. And then in 2016, I took three days and got away, but I, I got strep throat. And so it wasn't exactly a, you know, a restful retreat. It was more like recovery, but I really enjoyed it. I drove two and a half hours North up to Duluth, Minnesota, which is right on the Southern tip of Lake Superior. So, you know, Lake Superior is so big, you can't see the other side. So aside from, you know, there being no waves, it kind of feels a little bit like the ocean. I guess there's no beaches as well, but 
and no planes flying over with the little banners saying rent the rent this the surfboards and stuff. But yeah, there was I thought about a lot of a lot of different things, probably stuff that I'll you know talk about in the in the coming weeks and months on the podcast. But a good reminder if you haven't taken your retreat for 2018, check out the Zen Founder Guide to Founders Retreats. You can go to zenfounder.com and Sherry wrote like a 30 page guide that I use religiously, has all the questions and all the things you should be thinking about if you go on a founder retreat. Awesome. So what's the word this week? Well, we're answering some more listener questions. They keep trickling in at an at a even pace, which is really nice. It allows us to do these Q&A episodes pretty frequently. And the subject line of this email is, loved episode 384, GDPR. It's from Chris Duke, and he says, I've been listening for a while on my walks through town, and this is the first time I've probably laughed and shouted out loud. I try not to use the word stupid very much, but it is hard these days, and GDPR is one of those things that brings it to mind. Not the basic idea. It's good to make those of us in technology business think about protecting data. But the people who think up things like GDPR are completely clueless and have no business coming up with a regulation on something they don't understand. I keep thinking about one example, MailChimp. If I tell them to forget me, does that mean they have to forever take my email off of every list? What if removing my data from an application breaks something in the app where someone else that I've willingly given permission has used my email? It's called referential integrity. Thanks for talking about this, guys. We've already written the SQL script to delete data in my SaaS app. We used it as part of our development and test that and some clarity on our terms is about it for me. Keep up the great work. I know the answer to this one. Do you know? Didn't we talk about it last week or the week before where the forget me is on a per provider basis? So if you, let's say you and somebody else are my customer and people have data for both of them, if they tell you to delete it, the other person does not have to. They have to go to the, that person has to go to each of the individuals. And it has to do with who is the provider and who's who's the data provider and who's the data processor. Yep. So in the case of MailChimp, if you emailed MailChimp and said, you know, my email is on a bunch of, of your customers' email lists, forget me, MailChimp would say, you have to contact the customers, like the MailChimp customers. We, we can't delete data out of their account or, or we're not required to, I guess. Now, if you went to MailChimp and said, remove me from your list, you know, and forget me, obviously they could do that from their own list that they own, but that's exactly right. I still don't think that answers the question of how do you remember that you deleted somebody? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But I don't know that you need to, if they sign up again, I don't think you're supposed to block or, or I don't think you're required to block them, right? Because like you said, how do you know you have to keep their email if you're going <laughs> to not allow them to sign up again? Yeah. The other thing I wonder about is if you could just anonymize their data. So like it's no longer personally identifiable and you just overwrite the IP addresses with all zeros or all ones or something like that. And I think that's a realistic approach that people should evaluate because, you know, in complex systems, you don't delete stuff, right? I mean, as a rule, you don't delete rows from database tables, especially as, as you get larger and more and more complicated. So I do think that anonymizing is probably a way for, you know, as a listener out there, if you're thinking about this, you know, just changing their email to something at example.com to GUID at example.com. And like you said, overwriting their IP with blank stuff and having some probably want to flag or whatever that this is anonymized. But I do think that's that's an interesting approach. You know, I don't even think it's that, it's that it's just an interesting approach. Like in certain business situations, you almost have to do that because it's not even just about deleting the data. It's about knowing historically how different things that you've done turned out. Like if you go in and you have to delete a bunch of data for all these people that came in and visited your website, for example, on a certain month, it skews all of your reporting for all of those months. So you can't really see how things went or what happened during that time. So all of your decision making moving forward is completely screwed up like you can't delete it like you kind of have to just anonymize it and be done with it 
Cool. So thanks for the question, Chris. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Kenneth, and he says, Hey, guys, as always, love your podcast. Been a fan for a few years since I read Rob's book, Start Small, Stay Small, in 2011. Rob's book was a huge inspiration for me. However, I realize it's been almost a decade, or about eight years to be exact, since he wrote it. Obviously, many things have changed since then, and the internet's a totally different world today. So my question, if Rob were to update or rewrite the book in 2018, what would he change? I.e., would he remove chapters, focus more on certain points, include new topics, etc.? That's about it. Thanks for all the resources, podcasts, stories, etc. that you guys have openly shared. Been a constant inspiration for me, and hopefully one day I'll be able to share my own story on how much you guys have impacted my life. Best regards, Ken. I think I know the answer to this. What you'd is it? Rename it? You'd rename it to uh, Start Small, Get Big. <laughs> I don't think I would. No? No, because that's the thing. I mean... Obviously, that's what I wound up doing, right, was starting small and then and then going into something much bigger than I had originally intended. But I still think there's a really good case to be made for, for doing this kind of micro SaaS or micropreneur approach where you just have a lifestyle business and you never need to worry about all the headaches that I dealt with starting in 2013 of growing this company larger. Obviously, it came with rewards as well, but I still think it's a totally viable approach to start small and stay small. And I wouldn't presume just because I did something that everyone should. You know what I'm saying? I think it's totally legit to start a business, make low six figures. And if you're happy with that, man, that is, that's a great life. I was just pointing out that it should be, should have been renamed to start small, get big, just because on your website, where you go to sign up for your newsletter, it says exactly that. And then it's also that in the drip widget where you can sign up for the newsletter. <laughs> yeah. Which I did that once drip started getting big, I realized I'm not just talking about staying small anymore. So then, then moniker isn't even, isn't that appropriate. I probably, I need to rename that headline anyways. It's kind of, I've kind of neglected that. Unfortunately, that's on my pers personal website at robwalling.com. Yeah, so this question is interesting. I've thought about it a bit over the years. And to be honest, I had not opened my book. I mean, it's been five years, you know, since I went back and, and looked at it at all, maybe more. And so this forced me to go back and take a copy and kind of flip through it. And what I've realized is that so many of the concepts are still 100% valid today. It's some of the tactics that are not. So I go really deep, but it's only, I, I thought it was like half the book where I like deep dive into like breakout, I forget, micro niche finder or market samurai and like click this button and I have screenshot, you know, almost like it's some web tutorial, but it's only like five or 10 pages of the book is that. And that's the part that I would, I would remove because that part changed so fast. I mean, it was like probably less than 18 months after it was published a bunch of those links and, and screenshots were just invalidated. So realizing that it's a book and it's not a living, breathing online course that I can edit easily, that is part of it that I would pull out. I would still talk about niching down and talk, you know, I have a lot of concepts in there that still hold, but I would remove some of the tactics that, and again, it wouldn't be a huge chunk of them. It would be a small part of the book, but there's all tons of stuff about outsourcing and hiring VAs and, and the mindset and product last market first product class marketing first, I believe. I mean, there's all that stuff I still, uh, you know, still holds true. And I was trying to think of anything else that I would add today. I mean, certainly there are marketing channels I didn't even cover, like Facebook ads that I would probably mention. I would double down. I mean, I had a whole section on building your email list. I would probably expand that given how much more powerful I believe email is today and how much more I know about it than when, you know, I wrote the book in 2010, in essence. So I've, I've, you can say I've learned quite a bit about it in eight years. So there are parts that I would expand. 
I batted this around, obviously, for years. I think I've talked about it. Ever since it started going even slightly out of date, I was going to do a, an updated version, a second edition. I toyed around. I talked to a couple of publishers, talked about doing a little more you know, of a mainstream release. And I don't know, it's still in the back of my mind somewhere to go back and revise it. And it, flipping through the book made me realize, I always thought it's going to be too much effort. It's going to take a tremendous amount of time. I might as well write a new book. But that's not the case. I mean, it really wouldn't be... I don't think it, it wouldn't be near the effort of writing a new book, given how much, as I flipped through it, I was like, ah, oh, this stuff's pretty, still still really good content, you know, that, that's applicable. What do you think? You think I should go back and redo it? Well, I think that there's there's definitely room for a second edition. It really depends on whether or not you want to go through and have a second edition versus writing a new book. And I think if you write, obviously, if you write a new book, it's got to be a different topic of some kind. But whereas if you're simply revising the current book, it's obviously a lot less work. And you could probably bang that out in like a couple of weeks. I mean, it's not like it's that much effort, I don't think, because really, you're just cutting out a bunch of pages where it's hyper specific and the tools themselves or the URLs have changed. Or maybe you just you replace the tools or you drop the pages entirely. And there's probably a few things that you left out that you'd want to add, you know, maybe stories that you've shared over the years that resonated with people that never just made it into the book or better examples you have of different things, whether they're, you know, I, I think that with the book itself, you're mostly concentrating on your own experiences. So I doubt you'd go into sharing things that you've heard from other people, but, uh, you know, like specific examples from other people. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's a toss up, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good point. As you were talking, I realized that was the one other thing that I felt was a bit dated with the examples I used. And I used a lot of my own examples because there was really no one else that I knew. It was like Patrick McKenzie, Ruben from BidSketch, Harry and, and Ted from MoreAware. I mean, these, yeah, and then I used a bunch of, of the sites that I owned and Basecamp. You know, it's like there just wasn't that much going on in 2010 when I was, when I was reading this in terms of the bootstrapping and the micro SaaS and the micropreneur space. Now I have dozens, if not hundreds of examples, right? That's, that's where I could really beef it up. I could either, I don't know if I would go so far as to interview people or, you know, you and I just know the stories of so many people who have, who've taken this approach, whether they're Founder Cafe, Lifetime members, or they've come to MicroConf, or they listen to the podcast, or they read one of our books. It's just, we just have that knowledge so much more. And there's so much more of a community than there is today. So I do think that would be, uh, I don't know. Now I'm kind of fired up about it <laughs> as we're talking about it. Like it, it would be almost kind of fun to go back and see, because you're right. If I write another book, it's not, it can't be on that same topic. And I, and I wouldn't even have the interest, you know, to, to really focus on, on that exact same topic today, but rewriting it and just making it better is actually something that would be, I think could be interesting. So thanks for the question, Ken. I'll definitely keep noodling on it and see, uh, yeah, see if it leads anywhere. Our next question is a question about SaaS pricing. It's from Francois at cloudforecast.io. And he's sent us a, a couple questions, I think. He says, I'm reaching out to you again because we're trying to figure out our pricing model for a new feature. Here's my question. Cloudforecast.io is currently helping our clients monitor their AWS cost, and we are now working on a new feature to help them save money. The new feature will tell them how they can easily save money by fixing naive mistakes unused resources, reserved instances, et cetera, on a weekly basis. We have a hard time figuring out the pricing since the first email is much more valuable because there's a lot of potential optimization than the email in the third month or the fourth month or whatever. The first one's going to have you know a lot of value. The value will also depend on the size of their AWS account. Here are a few ideas we have in mind. First one is a percentage-based monthly price based on their overall spend 
Second one is a flat monthly price based on their overall spend. The third one is an expensive first email followed by a low flat monthly price. And the fourth one is remove the weekly cadence, offer it as a standalone product, and charge a percentage of what they can potentially save. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Thanks for the podcast. What do you think, sir? I think this is a really interesting question just because there are situations where people can really undervalue what like a piece of software can provide for them. And I can definitely see is, there's an analogy for this situation, which I saw, a, I think it was a, a an online tool where you could go and you could, somebody was basically building an example of how to use like Azure services or something like that. And they were letting you put in your email address and find out if it had been hacked across like hundreds of millions of records. And it was coming back to quickly. And people did not believe the results that they were getting because it came back so fast. So they ended up inserting some artificial delays into it to make it appear like it was doing more work than it actually was. And I've heard similar examples in other places as well from different people doing different things. And this seems to me like that's one of those situations where people may look at that and say, oh, well, your software is doing this, but I don't value it as much, even though I'm on paper saving a heck of a lot of money. And I wonder if the solution to this would not be to price it as like a standalone thing, but to price it as, hey, here's a service that we offer and it's X thousand dollars or a percentage of whatever the monthly price is that's saved. And you offer that as such as a, as a service, not as like something you can just go in and automatically get this report that shows you all this information. And that way it gives the impression that you're doing all of this extra work and analysis. And the reality is most of it's automatically generated, but it's based on all the work that you've done already. And then the ongoing monthly reports could be some flat monthly price that is related to their overall spend to kind of help them save money. Because that first email, I totally agree that if you're saving them a a heck of a lot of money upfront, then trying to go down the path of having a SaaS pricing model that is variable in some way that reflects the value that you're providing to them is really not going to work very well. So I think that positioning as a service as opposed to like, hey, here's this off the shelf thing that you can buy that the software will do everything for you. That's probably the approach I'd at least look at and test it out with a few people first. You're saying like presented as, hey, we do this manually type thing. I mean, not maybe not coming out and saying that, but like this is a valuable service that we offer and don't imply that software is doing all of it. No, I would I wouldn't say that. I would say that it is not something you can go in and you can just click a few buttons and automatically get the report. Like you have to talk to somebody in order to get it. I see. Yeah. yeah. And that way you can look at that and you could almost give them a, a ballpark estimate or price based on what you're seeing from the from the stats and say, hey, this is the, the price that we have for this. And we think that you're going to save probably in this neighborhood. So you could give them a range, like if they're going to save ten to $20,000 a, a month, you can tell them that and you say, this is going to be $5,000 and just ballpark looking at what you've got. This is what we think you'll save. And then when you give them the actual report, it will show them exactly the steps that they need to do that will give them $17,000 a month in savings. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. I I think that's a pretty good approach, actually. I'm kind of torn on a couple things. I think the percentage based on how much they spend, it's very logical. I'm curious to see what customers think of that. And I guess it also depends on the what the percentage is, right? I guess that makes it makes a lot of sense. You can tell I'm kind of I'm like torn on it. I I like the idea better of flat pricing, but I, I actually do think the percentage could make a lot of sense because you know when we were tiny and bootstrapped and and the AWS bill was five grand a month, and if you said it was one percent and that's fifty bucks a month, like that would probably have been a no brainer for me. And then of course once you're doing thirty or forty grand a month, it is worth more, and at three hundred four hundred a month kind of feels equivalent. So that's probably what I would lean towards is this percentage. I think 
trying to make the first email more expensive, I think is kind of a tough call. I, I don't think I would go that way, but I would consider making this kind of an annual only thing that you give, you know, they can get a sample email or they can get you know, the first 20% of what the email looks like or something like that. You give them some information to prove that it does something. And then, like you said, they have to talk to someone in order to get this. And it's relatively high priced and you do annual. And the challenge with annual is their spending is going to go up and down over the year. So how do you bill, you know, how do you bill a whole year when you don't, when they're metered in essence? And with that, you can either do it with a, on a credit-based system or you can bill them where they are today and then bill them just the incremental each month, you know, if they're up or down, you can kind of keep it there. So I think this is a, an interesting thing. I, there are two data points in essence. And I think talking to either existing customers or prospects is got to be your next step, right? To, to basically say, we're going to do it based on a percentage and it's going to be quarterly only, or it's going to be annual only. Do you want to sign up? And that's that you're going to see if the rubber meets the road at that point. Our next question is about sponsoring events as a SaaS marketing strategy. And this is from Ed Freyfogel, who was a speaker at this year's MicroConf Europe. He says, given that you've run many events, I'm wondering what you think of sponsoring events as a marketing strategy. Particularly, I'd love to hear any tangible tips or best practices you've seen from sponsors as a way to make the most out of an event in terms of general brand building, but also specifically winning new customers. What do you think, Mike? Well, obviously, I, I run the sponsorship side of MicroConf, so I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I'll try to keep them briefer than I would if we were doing an entire episode on it. So when you're looking to sponsor events, the thing I would keep in mind is that before you even try to figure out which events you're going to be sponsoring, figure out what your goal is. So if your goal is to build brand awareness, then make sure that you know that in advance. and You don't try to do things that go outside of building brand awareness. So that would include going to events or conferences where you know it's not the right audience for building brands. So like if you sell a marketing tool, going to a developer's conference obviously like there's probably a little bit of crossover if you're going for entrepreneurs but you don't want to just build brand awareness with developers if they're not the ones making the decisions because if you're trying to get customers you want to be able to get in touch with the decision makers not the people who are at the other end of it like the, the bottom layer of the organization the other thing i think keep in mind is that when you are talking to people at a, at a conference or an event how close are you to the decision maker how many hops are you going to have to make between the person that you talk to and the rest of the team or the people who actually make the decision because you may be able to run into the people who would use your product, but they don't necessarily care. So for example, if you sell transactional email service of some kind and you go to a, a developer's conference, those developers may not actually care about like deliverability rates. The marketers would, but they're not the ones that you're talking to. So you're going to have to convince the developer to give you an introduction to the marketer or whoever the VP of sales is that is going to say, hey, this deliverability is important to me and we should possibly switch providers in order to get better deliverability. So those are the types of things that I would think of to start off with. And then beyond that, you want to stand out from the other sponsors. So if you have an opportunity to customize whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a specific giveaway to the audience or you're trying to drive traffic or drive conversations with people, figure out ways to do that. So you might do like a Q&A session that is informal, either during lunch or after the conference or during one of the evening events, something along those lines. If you do a giveaway, you can provide people with that giveaway as 
a, a link and then you capture their email address. The other thing is make sure that when you're you attend these events. If you try to sponsor an event from afar, it's probably not going to get nearly the level of engagement or awareness that you're looking for. So make sure that you go, make sure that you have business cards to hand out and make sure that you collect business cards or contact information from people while you're there. And then once you've done that, absolutely make sure that you follow up with those people to take it to whatever the next logical step happens to be, whether it's to have another conversation or to get on a demo or to just to discuss what sorts of things they're doing. Last thing I have a piece of advice I'd say is to make sure that if you can lead things in that direction to get to a promise of a future conversation and not suck up somebody's time at the conference, that's also not a bad thing. Awesome. Yeah, I'm actually going to leave it there because I feel like you have so much more experience dealing with this topic. And uh, I think that was a pretty good little primer there. We'll probably do a whole episode on that, huh? Probably. <laughs> Our next question is a subscription box company asking about technical issues and funding. It's from Tyler Turk at CratedWithLove.com. He says, I'm a Fresno-based startup, and I have a question for you. I own a subscription box company. I founded the company with my wife while attending Fresno State in 2015. In our first three years, we've accumulated over 500000 in revenue. I've been pretty much on my own from a business perspective, doing all the ideation, curation, and even packing and shipping, my wife helps occasionally. So they're a monthly box subscription company, obviously, and it looks like they're kind of date night boxes. So you would buy it and then there's activities and stuff for you to do with your significant other. Our biggest weakness right now is our technology and product market fit. We have a large amount of subscribers that have been with us for two years or more, and the average active subscriber stays about eight months, but our churn is higher than we'd like. I know where the holes are in our website, but I lack the technical skills to fix them. In addition, I think the future of our company is more digital, but I'm having a hard time figuring out how I pitch the future technology based on the data from the physical products we sell now, especially since the biggest needs are technical. I feel like I'm in a vicious circle where I won't be able to raise the money I need to scale until I fix our churn problem, but I can't fix our churn problem until I get the funds to fix the technical problems. So I have two questions. As a startup from a smaller market with no relative experience in fundraising or network in larger markets, where should I start? And second, how do I transition from a product-based company to a tech company or a hybrid of both using the data I have now to support our pitch? you have thoughts on either of those? So with these two questions, I'll just before I answer them, I do want to kind of at least comment on one thing. Tyler had said that he has a large number of subscribers that have been there for two or more years, and the average subscriber stays about eight months, but the churn's higher than they'd like. And I'm not sure exactly what the problem is on the website that would have any bearing on that. Uh, so that's just a, uh, I'll say an open question that I'm, I might have on that. Cause like if you're sending those emails to them and they are you know, like making purchases and sticking around for a while, what is it about the website that would make them go away? Like are things fundamentally broken, which are causing people to drop through the cracks or is there something wrong with your email provider? So I'm just kind of curious about what that is, but uh, neglecting that going back to the two questions, the first one, which was, as someone with no experience with fundraising or networks in larger markets, how should I start? Coincidentally, one of our uh, sponsors for MicroConf this year is called Bigfoot Capital, and they provide funding for subscription-based businesses. And I think that they're focused mainly on SaaS businesses, but this is a subscription business, so it might fall under the, their wheelhouse. So you can go check them out at bigfootcap.com. Basically, what they do is they look at your financials, and they have a, a wide variety of people that they have provided funding to, and they give you a loan. 
loan. And that loan is, you know, whatever percentage, but it's going to be based on like the risk that they see. And you're probably going to have a much better chance or opportunity of getting a loan to address some of the technical challenges that you have from somebody like that than you would from a traditional bank who has absolutely no understanding of online businesses. They just, they just don't get it. And yes, with $500,000 in revenue over three years, they may be able to do something, but my guess is that they just do not understand. So I would look for some sort of private funding like that. I don't know about fundraising. Rob, you could probably speak to that. And the second question he has is, how do I transition from a product-based company to a tech company or a hybrid of both using the data I have now to support our pitch? And I think we're going to have to make some assumptions here because I don't really understand what you are specifically intending by that. But my assumption is that what you're trying to do is take your current offerings that you probably send to people physically through the mail. And so whether it's uh, worksheets or PDFs or you know that you deliver digitally, basically make them into online worksheets that you can fill out on the website and share them or through your app or something along those lines. So with that in mind, I think that you need to test some of these things out and get information from the the subscribers that you currently have now. Find out if those, like, can you get hard data that really says, hey, this is why I left. And it has to do with like the convenience factor. Because I think that if you're trying to look at this as a way to simply cut costs, like if you're suffering from a problem where your cost of goods sold is too high and you're trying to cut into that, I don't know is going down the road of automating things and putting all this technical stuff in place is going to really change that because developers are going to be expensive to build all custom stuff for that. And I think that you're really just going to end up burning a hole in your pocket to try and build that stuff. And and in the meantime, you're still paying those current costs that you're for the goods that you're selling. And then later on, you're still going to need to have ongoing updates and maintenance and things like that. And there's always going to be this subset of people who do not want to switch from the physical stuff that they're already getting. So then you have to make some decisions about, do you cut those people off and abandon them? Or do you try to move them over and say, look, if you, if you don't move over, we really can't do anything for you. Or you just force them. Those are the things that I would have to say about it. Rob, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I I would definitely agree on the second part about like trying to move into software, I think is a great long-term play, but I would not do that without funding if you're not technical because it's just going to be really expensive and you're going to be able to, you're going to get more bang for your buck if you take whatever earnings you have and put them into the, essentially back into the business. I do agree that this is the kind of business where funding is actually kind of needed. Like physical goods are just so, they're really time consuming and they're really expensive, you know, and at a certain point you're going to need a small warehouse and you're going to need to pay rent and, and the margin on physical goods obviously is nothing like software. So this is one of those cases where I think, especially since you have some traction, because look, an eight month lifetime is 12%, 12.5% churn. And that's that's not terrible. I mean, you want to improve upon that, obviously. And, and it sounds like you have some ideas on how to do it. But there are companies raising funding that are pre-revenue in the, let's say the two to $3 million range. I mean, let's say one to one to 3 million. And if there's like a proven founder, they can raise four or 5 million pre-revenue. And, and if they're in Y Combinator, they can, you know, raise 10 million or whatever. So the fact that you have revenue and you have some type of numbers and you have a business model and you've shown the hustle over three years, it's a big plus for angel investors. I'm not saying it's going to be a slam dunk. It'd be great if you had a network, but raising a round of, if you raise 
250, I would say you're not raising enough. I think you probably need to raise half a million. I mean, you really need to look at what you want to do with the money. If you want to do a Series A later, then you have to think, I want this money to last about 12 to 18 months. If you never want to raise a Series A and you want this to take you to get your growth and then take you through to profitability, then I think somewhere between 250 and 500 is a, is a decent number. And I would start in a, in a couple of ways. I would get on AngelList, angel.co. I would try to connect with either local investors because there are there is money to be had i know it's crazy but there's money to be had in the central valley of california it's a lot of farmland but there are a lot of of people who've made money and want to invest in especially in local startups i would also since i happen to have the you know hometown advantage of having lived there bitwise industries downtown like that that's the hub that's the tech hub for really fresno and the, and the central valley so i would somehow you know get on their radar they have pitch competitions every once in a while i attended one when i still lived there and there were three or four startups that pitched and, and you're with your story, I think you could, I really do think you could, you know, hustle and raise the money. You've already shown that you have the hustle to see this business through for three years on your own. And so to me, raising funding is not actually going to be that, that difficult for someone with the focus and the kind of the grit that you've shown already. So that, that really would be my next move. I think if I were in your shoes is to go out and, you know, again, I would raise an angel round. I'd probably stay away from institutional money where it's someone investing someone else's money because they want quite a bit of control and there's com complications with that. But it's certainly is a interesting and fortuitous place to find yourself in. So really nice work on this, man. I mean, it's, you know, you've, you've done something that, that not many people can do a getting a business to, to last for three years and to essentially, I guess, break even or be profitable and B to do it with physical products. So good for you. So thanks for the question, Tyler. I wish you the best of luck moving forward. Are we all set for today? We are. That'll do it. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups, and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.